Our passage this morning is Micah chapters 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shepher, in nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanon. Do not come out. The lamentations of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the mountain, for the inhabitants of Maroth, Wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth-Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Meresheth. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald to the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily. 
for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. The changes, the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You stripped the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thoughts of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. For their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us, that we might know you and that we might know how to live. We pray, Father, that as Phil preaches this passage, that you will speak through him and that we will come to a better understanding of you and your, your grace and your attributes. Father, we just pray now that you open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the second uh, in the part of six in a series of Micah. Um, we're doing chapters one and two today. And uh, I just wanted to kind of remind you of some key questions that I asked last week that I want to review pretty much every time as we go through this and kind of what the book is about. This is what I'm saying the book is about, how God responds to unjust Israelite leaders. And uh, then we can think through maybe how does Micah exalt God and point to the Messiah? What kind of sin or what kind of injustice specifically, and we're going to cover this at length today, does Micah call out? among the people of Israel? Third, how does leadership, and to make it personal, your leadership, my leadership, affect people? Because that's a big theme in the book of Micah we talked about last time, and we'll be going through it some today and a lot more next week. And then how is God going to solve Micah's sin problem, my sin problem, their sin problem? What is, what is his answer? What is his solution to that? And uh, we'll see a little bit of that today. A tiny bit, a couple of verses, but it's there in seed form. Reminder that we read chapters 1 and 2, so we're in the first division of the book. And so today we're going to answer one of the ways in which God responds to those unjust leaders. 
And it's really about consequences today. Consequences for injustice. Remember I said we want to learn from the people of Israel and then Judah a little bit later how we should act, what not to do, what to do. And so God sends them consequences and we want to learn from that too. And at the heart of injustice, which are the consequences that are coming for that, at the heart of injustice are counterfeit comforts. And that's one of the things I want to talk about today, counterfeit comforts. Before every great injustice is committed, and indeed behind and driving, motivating every great injustice, lies a desire for something outside of what God has said should be had, a desire for a counterfeit comfort. And so that's the subject today, consequences for counterfeit comforts. And I want to kind of talk through today a little bit how that works. And so I have some injustices here. Some are really great and some are not so great in the scheme of broad things, but I think you'll see what drives them and it'll help us to understand how Micah is presenting his argument here. The first one, American chattel slavery uh, pre-Civil War, okay? You know, Southern Plantation used slave labor to produce four main export crops that made really the U.S. very wealthy. Tobacco, rice, forest products, and indigo. Why? Wealth. Driving that great injustice and the abuse and murder of untold numbers of people was wealth. A counterfeit comfort, a replacement for God. I found this story. It's the most recent one in Texas I could find, but you can look it up. There's hundreds of them, sadly, every year. On January 3rd, 2023, in Harris County, Texas, a mom uh, murdered her six-year-old daughter from her second marriage, and then shot herself in the parking lot of a big box store. Authorities kind of at first were puzzled like they are in those cases and found out later that she just had been struggling with her second marriage. And so in an escape, the ultimate kind of unjust escape, she murders her daughter of her second marriage and then commits suicide. Driving that injustice is a desire, a, a counterfeit comfort to get out. The ultimate expression of that. One study last year showed that 80% of people have or are willing to lie on their resume to get a job. And not just like a little embellishment, like straight lies. That 80% of people have or are willing to do that. That's the culture we live in. Driving that injustice, really taking away a job from someone else by elevating yourself against them and all the other people that are applying at that time is security and livelihood counterfeit comfort for that injustice. You imagine if eight out of ten people <laughs> are lying about that job? What an injustice. And this one hits a little closer to home. I talked to the youth about it on our New Year's celebration but, and challenge. The average person in the United States has seven hours of screen time apart from work and school. Seven hours. That's almost a third of your life wasted that God could use otherwise. Now, I've been there. This isn't like, hey, you. It's like, hey, me. You know, that is a great injustice. God wants to make much of your life and not have it wasted. When asked why, the three main responses were, I want to escape from responsibility. Okay, they're honest, right? <laughs> At least they're honest. Uh, I need to relax or just to pass the time. Hours wasted. So that's kind of where we're coming at this subject, the consequences of the injustice. 
right? It, the consequences of what God is bringing on them come from their desire for counterfeit comforts. And I think you'll see that in the text if you haven't already. And so we have two big consequences here, judgment and then kind of a variety of responses that are like a series of snowball, snowball effects for injustice. So let's go to that first section. It's kind of long, but it's 1, 1 through 2, 5, so you can follow along in the ESV. I'm going to hit some verses here as we go through. So consequences in judgment. So consequences in judgment. And let's be honest, this isn't a very friendly text. There's a lot of bad things happening here. But I don't want you to miss the first bad thing that happens. The first judgment is actually God descends in Micah's vision or prophecy and confronts Israel. And it's a scary confrontation. He's like melting mountains and splitting valleys. Like, that is a big consequence. Like, I was scared of my dad. He's here now, yeah? When I was younger, he, when, I, when I did something wrong, when there was injustice in my life, he confronted me. How much greater to have God show up, descend from heaven, and start being a witness, judge, jury, and executioner against you? That's a big consequence. It's, that tells us, hey, I'm serious about what's going on here and your injustice. So that's the first one I see here. And then he says... If you're following down in verse 3, he's coming. Why is he coming down? All the sin, but particularly the ones emanating from the capitals. I think we can understand this, right? You know, do you want to find out the real depravity? This was compliments of the guys on Wednesday of the U.S. Where do you look? The capital, right? It's where people assemble. It's where laws are made. It's where policy decisions come from. And you can see how a country how an organization is doing from the top. If they're corrupt, it's corrupt. If they're unjust, it's unjust. I have an illustration here. A little bit of a sad one, but a personal one. I have an aunt who is kind of handicapped, and she can't handle her finances, and my dad eventually took them over. And so, you know, he's looking through her finances, and he finds that she's got this regularly occurring debit from Wells Fargo for car insurance. Now, here's the problem with that. <laughs> she doesn't own a car, and she doesn't have a license, and she can't drive. And my dad comes to find out that these guys have been taking money, thousands of dollars out of her account, even overdrafting her account, because they pushed a sale on her. And I don't know if you remember uh, this case in the U.S. recently for Wells Fargo, but they got in a lot of trouble for this business practice. Sam is shaking his head. He's in banking. He knows, right? So I, I found some interesting things about it. Former employees of Wells Fargo tell, tell of like a very high pressure, unjust, here's what I'm going, unjust sales culture. They say that they had to sell eight products a day. That's open accounts, sell insurance, and that was the average. And if they didn't, they were called into the back room, yelled at by their bosses, and then sent out and everyone shamed them basically. It was worse. On big events, one of them was called Jump Into January, they had to sell 20 a day. 20 a day. Well, they got in trouble for cases like my aunt's and for all those things. You know what they did? The first thing they did is fire 3,400 of the lowest level employees that were making the sale. Isn't that crazy? Like, of course, right? Like, their response is to fire the low-level employees. But as we find out, and if you can go look it up, it was, it was from the very top levels. Their San Francisco head office was pushing this to sell, to make money. Greed. The leadership was driving an extremely unjust situation. Injustice. And that's the way it is in the book of Micah. And he calls it out. 
And then he kind of backs off a little bit, and he picks it up again in chapter 3. But we need to know and understand that this came from the very top levels, heads and leaders of those southern and northern kingdoms of Israel at that time. There were other offenses that judgment fell on them because of. And the first one that I want to tackle here is high places. You see it in verse 5. High places were a huge problem. Eighty times in the Old Testament this phrase is mentioned, and even when kings were good, they left up the high places. And that's a problem. What are the high places? Well, they're literally a high place, (laughs) an altar that's artificially elevated and decorated with false gods, all kinds of things, and sacrifices were made at them. Now, it could be just fruit or an offering or a prayer, but sadly, at various times and in different reigns of kings, children were offered at those. If you remember last week, we talked about Ahaz. It says he, he passed his son through the fire, and that's what he did. At a high place, he murdered his firstborn, a boy. And so God calls this out here. He starts to call it out. That's one of the consequences. Other ones include premeditated injustice, just like Wells Fargo. Like, I remember joking with Reese, we were studying this in discipleship group. It's like, when they're supposed to be sleeping, they're actually thinking up ways to destroy people. The funny thing is, God doesn't sleep, and he's going to get them. He's coming for them. He says, you know what? You, when you go to bed, it's like you're thumbing through your phone looking for ways to take advantage of people, ways to exploit others. And he calls them out for that. And it's a clear indication of something that God sees as extremely unjust, premeditated oppression of those without power from those who have power. It says they can do it. They, just because they can is the way it comes off. What did they steal? What did they do? They stole clothes, houses, land as an inheritance. Land kind of represents an inheritance. Land, whatever they had, basically, think about it, it was theirs. They, they wanted to steal it from fellow Israelites. Who did they oppress? Foreigners, <laughs> widows, women, and children. Pretty terrible. And not only that, not only that, and you can read that in the text there in one, chapters 1 and 2, but uh, they also enslaved fellow Israelites. I think 2 verse 9 is a reference to that. Not super clear, but we read in Leviticus 25 about the ability for someone who's extremely poor to kind of give themselves to a fellow Israelite to make money, to make a living for themselves. The thing was, they aren't supposed to treat him like a slave. They're supposed to actually be like a worker, a normal worker, even though they kind of are bound to you in that regard. And then you're supposed, there's a lot of restriction. You're supposed to let him go after a certain period of time. You're not really supposed to like get him into huge debt. Well, what were the Israelites doing? They were doing that. Amos 2.6, remember a contemporary says, he talks about them enslaving the poor and righteous fellow Israelites, not treating them as good workers. They were enslaving them and taking their inheritance and everything they had, including their land. Isaiah 61 talks about this practice when he says, declares the, what Jesus quoted later, the, the year of the Lord's favor, releasing the captives. Well, why did he have to declare that? They didn't release them. <laughs> like, they kept them and enslaved their whole family, ruined what God would have them, right? You read that in the text. What God would have them have, they took away. This indentured servitude actually continued into Jeremiah's day. So, as we talked about last week, Judah didn't learn, <laughs> and Jeremiah condemns them for it in chapter 34, 8 through 11. There's also in verse 10, this kind of uncleanness that destroys. I think there's a general unholiness of the land. You know, when you're taking advantage of people, when you're forcing women into prostitution, when you're murdering your sons and daughters in the fire, like, it makes the land unclean. 
I think this is just a contrast to God's holiness. What he wants them to do, they are doing the exact opposite. They are not holy. They're unclean. And then, I find it to be funny, and we're going to cover it, kind of funny at least, <laughs> pleasure-seeking in the form of substance abuse. They would rather have a sermon about alcohol than they would about God and his judgment or his mercy. Now, before I go any further, I want to talk about a biblical definition of justice. Because there are a lot of versions of justice out there. There is a lot of adjective attached to it, whether it's CRT or social justice or religious justice or whatever you name it, racial justice. The Bible just gives us a clear definition of this. Um, this word is used 57 times in Isaiah and 9 in Micah, so we're shooting at over one per chapter, almost one per chapter in Isaiah, so it's a big deal. The word is mishpat or shafat, but justice in these passages and others in the Bible is not giving something, in other words, it is not this. It's not grace. It's not giving someone something they don't deserve. That's not really justice. That's kind of grace. Justice is not fairness or equal outcomes according to the Scripture. In fact, here's a challenge to you. I think fairness in many of the ways we think about it today is actually demonic because life is not fair. God is not about fairness. He's about justice, not equality. Everyone is exactly equal. He's about doing what he wants for his purposes. Justice is not something that we get personally. It's not something that's done primarily for me. Actually, going back to that fairness thing, again, this fairness of me and someone else, what's unfair for me, fairness is actually only used six times in the ESV Bible. The entire Bible, and eight times, and six of them, six of the eight, are about beauty. Now, we don't use beauty that way anymore, but it's like, hey, this person is fair. All right, we use other ways to describe that today. So actually, the ESV only used fair in this justice context two times. And they're both in 2 Corinthians, and I think there's a reason. But the Bible doesn't describe justice as fairness. It's interesting. Nor is justice an ideal outside of God. So as if it's a standard that he must live up to, like you're unjust, God. No, God is justice. He himself is justice. We look at Romans chapter 3 especially verses 25 and 26. You don't have to turn there. I'm, I'm going to tell you. It's, he said it's to show his righteousness so that he might be the just and the justifier. He is just. He demonstrates that. He doesn't need to adhere to an outside standard. Justice is part of the moral perfection of God that longs for the best for all his creatures. It longs for the best for all his creatures. And that isn't necessarily fairness. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 4. It says, He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. 1 Peter 1, 17 says, And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially, impartially, according to each one's deeds. So we have impartiality versus fairness, right? As kind of the contrast in the Bible. A good way to sum this up. And in Hello, which is a dictionary in Hebrew and Aramaic, it says this. Justice signifies the action that restores peace to a community when it has been disturbed by wickedness. So when we think about it that way, we can see what God is saying to these people. I'm going to restore righteousness to your land through judgment. You should know righteousness. He goes on to say that later, but you don't. So biblical justice is rightness. It's doing 
what is honoring to the Lord that brings peace to everyone around us. And it's the exact opposite. Do you see now what they're doing? <laughs> Motivated by these counterfeit comforts, instead of God, they're causing chaos and a lack of peace and injustice. The land is suffering because of them. Indeed, Micah says, and remember what Micah means, who is like God, who is God? Micah says, and the witness of the Bible says, we can't know justice, catch this, without knowing God. You can't really know justice without knowing, having a relationship with God himself. And by implication then, I think you see where I'm going. These people didn't really know God. They didn't really know him. And his judgment was coming on them. So because of injustice, because everything that they had been doing, everything that they like comforted themselves with is going to be taken away. Indeed, their own lives would be forfeit. Think about those who were living in Syria and Judah at the time. Knowing how wicked Assyrians were, they would stake people out just to let them die. They'd skin them and put the skin on the walls of the defeated cities. It was pretty terrible. And they knew this was coming. The Assyrians were coming. That was God's judgment. He was taking away their comforts. He took away their capitals, Samaria in the north. He said, you're going to be destroyed. If you go and look up at a picture of what Samaria would have looked like, it was a huge walled city, done. Like a, It was just flattened afterward. There's a tell there. There's a flat place. That's what God says he's going to do. He's going to take away your capitals. He says of Judah's main cities, except for Jerusalem. This is an important note for this chapter. Jerusalem isn't included in destruction, but all those cities at the end there, end of chapter one, they're all in Judah. They're all in the south. And they're all in rows that lead up to the capital. So Sennacherib comes later and he wipes them out, just as Micah said he would. They're about to have a housing crisis because like 90% of the land they live on is going to be taken away and destroyed. And it's not because of like Californians bringing cash like here, it's because God is bringing the pain. He's bringing the pain and judgment for their injustice. He takes away, in verse 7, idols and unjust gain. He takes away their leaders that they hoped in. And this one is particularly interesting because he says the glory of Israel will go to Adullam. The glory is representative of the leaders. You know what Adullam is? Some of you might. The cave where David went and hid from Saul. <laughs> so there's this picture like, hey, you're going to go into this cave and hide. Your great ones are going to be brought low. Then sadly, he says in verse 16, their children are going to be removed from them. That's a comfort. I love my kids. I'm sure my parents love me most times. I'm sure you love your kids. That's a judgment. God is taking away everything they hold dear. And their land in 2.5. Now, I think this is something very interesting for us to notice if you look at 2.5. It's talking about the law and the assembly of the Lord. And it's talking about how they won't have anyone to cast a lot. So it seems clear that it's land here. I also think it's referencing closeness to God. Kind of that remnant idea, those who are faithful. I think he's saying, I'm going to take away your land, but you're not going to have any part in me. I think this is referencing spiritual separation. Because you've rejected me, it's done. It's done. I think this is true for all of us. God removes our counterfeit comforts as consequence for injustice. And he'll do it so that we'll see him. And he's always reminding us of what he's reminding them through Micah, that he is ultimate, not you or me. He's reminding us that not things, cities or 
whatever it is that we might be proud of, armies, houses, family relationships, not even the lives of the people we're closest to are more important than him. And he wants you to see that, I think, through his judgment here. He removes their counterfeit comforts. We can be sure of this, that unjust behavior from a desire for those will have consequences. The scripture is clear about that. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. And then James 4.4, a little bit closer to home. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. See Micah there? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's what the people in northern Israel did, and that's what we do when we take comfort in counterfeit things in our lives. For believers, us here and now, If there's injustice in our culture, in our church, in our own lives, it definitely stems from that same thing. That's the motive. That's where injustice comes. We want something illicitly as a comfort, but it's a counterfeit for God himself. These comforts will not give us what they promise. The devil is a liar. They will not give you what you want. What they'll give you is what happened to northern Israel and later southern Israel. Destruction. Separation from God, difficult times. And they'll rob us of joy. John Piper says that these things, that counterfeit comforts, what they actually do is end up taking your joy. Now, where might injustice occur in our lives? And this is not you or the culture, it's me too, it's all of us. Wherever there are vulnerable people. And maybe it's as simply for you as ignoring a need uh, for a ride or making a meal for a neighbor. I don't want to camp on this one because my parents got here recently because I'm a parent and because I run the youth ministry here. And so this one has become huge in the last few years, especially parenting and especially bad parenting. It's injustice. Kids are one of the weakest, most vulnerable populations that we're responsible for. And almost everyone here has that kind of relationship. So it applies to all of us. Bad parenting is injustice. We can't stick our heads in the ground and just ignore it. We can't hide under a rock about what's going on in our culture around us, the things that attack our families every day, no matter where you send your kids to. Researchers think that the first exposure to pornography is usually around eight years old now. That's my son's age. And no greater, no study says it's greater than 10 years old. And that's, that's regardless of where you send your kids. It's almost unavoidable. We need to be really diligent in how we approach that, knowing those facts as parents. Giving in to hours upon hours of entertainment for our kids is injustice. Seven hours. It's actually greater the younger you get. It, and it's actually, I think about it this way, and this one hit me hard as I was preparing for Micah over the holiday break. I'm bribing my kids for some freedom if I say go watch that show for two hours because I'm tired. I am abdicating my responsibility 
as a parent to serve them well. I'm acting unjustly if I push them out there, say, hey, look at this shiny thing. I'm going to go do what I want. That's injustice. I don't know, even if you're not a younger parent, you can think of times in your life when you do that very same thing. I finally caved recently. (laughs) I wish I hadn't, but I went and looked at the TikTok site, okay? Heard all this stuff about it. Kids are making them at youth events. I'm like, I'll go check this thing out. I better see what it's about. I got to tell you, I wish I never had. I, I, I pulled it up, and on the front page, the first three videos I looked at, had inappropriate language and dress, and I shut it down. It was crazy, but that is one of the most common things kids look at and they're exposed to. Kind of as a result of this, we shut down phones at youth group for most of it, you know? But as parents, we we need to protect our kids and challenge them. Even older parents, mom and dad, I see you, have serious conversations about them, about what's going on in the culture and what they can expect. Challenge them. Don't miss the mission field in your own lives. And I think this applies to parents For all ages, God's given you kids if you've had them, and certainly you have people in your life that you can encourage in ways and act justly. There's a lady, Jen knows at RCC, which is Classical Conversations, where we send our kids, who uh, right before the holiday break said, hey, I want to come over and bring my kids and we'll hang out. She's like, great. It turned into a five-hour counseling session because she's suicidal she, never, she said she never wanted kids. And so my wife was like, wow, okay, how do we deal with this? You know, she said she just puts her kids on the TV all day, literally all day. When they're home from school, they're doing that, and she's in bed. Just really sad. It's grieving. But what's even sadder, and without going into too many details, is Jen tried to arrange for the administrator to work with her, some other moms to help her. You know what happened? Not a single person reached out to that lady. She's not a believer. She's from Eastern Russia. Man, that is injustice. (laughs) They are in need of great help. And wherever those vulnerable people in our lives, and now speaking to CBC as a whole, we need to be a church where parents are equipped, we're equipped and trained to parent and disciple for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's not miss out on the mission field right here in our own church, especially as parents. Let's not cop out on what God wants us to do and miss out. The judgment there is in the missing out of reward for all eternity, and it can And I've seen it impact kids as well. There's judgment there all around. We miss out. They miss out. They don't get to see what God would have. We steal their glory forever if we fail to do that. So, consequences because of counterfeit comforts. Judgment. Judgment for injustice. Secondly, I see justice and unrighteousness coming uh, as consequences for that. Coming in responses now. It's a chain of events, and I want to walk you through this here as we move to chapter 2, verses 6 and 13, and then 1, 8 as well. So we're into 2, 6 here. God comes down, and he pronounces judgment, right? So we've got that. He's, He's confronted them. Now three people have a chance to respond. And these are also kind of consequences of what God is doing. It's like this. You're up too late thumbing through YouTube or Maybe you're watching a football game too late, and you're old, and you got to go to bed early, like me, right? So you should be in bed at 10, and you're up till 11. Well, because of that, you get up late, and the dog has peed in your house. <laughs> that happened a lot in lots of different youth lives, right? I talk to them a lot, okay? So then they're late for work. You're late for work, and you miss a deadline. Because of that, you're angry, and you come home, and you yell at your wife or your husband, and you don't talk to each other, and you go in bed, and you're sad. All because you stayed up too late. 
thumbing through YouTube or whatever it is. See the chain of events there? That's what's going on here in Micah. Their sin has resulted in judgment. They have a chance to respond, but there's more consequences coming, I think, even in the responses. We'll see where their hearts are. We'll see where they trust, who trusts, and where do they put their trust at. And the first response is Micah. So we're backing up a little bit in chapter 1, verse 8. How does Micah respond? Grieving and wailing. Now, don't miss this here. This is an extreme response, right? He looks at what's coming and at the Assyrian invasion, and he basically strips down and starts acting like an animal. Reminds you of John the Baptist a little bit, doesn't it? He's grieving for sin. Why? Well, he knows it means destruction for a lot of his relatives even. His hometown is going to be destroyed. But it also means damnation because they've rejected God. He sees that, and he grieves. I think it's the same response that Paul had in Romans 9, if you're familiar with it. He says, I wish I was accursed. He's grieving for his people's rejection of God. It's the same response Jesus had in Matthew 23. He says, man, I wish I could gather you, but you wouldn't have me. And he's looking forward to 70 AD when Rome is going to come and turn over every block. They're going to murder and pillage and destroy Israel. Judah then, the southern kingdom. This should be our response at injustice. It should be grief. Anger, yes, probably, at seeing what's going on in our culture with all the transgender and all the destruction, but grief primarily at what injustice is going around in our lives and his life. And instead of gossip or whatever, he just laments. And you may have heard this before, but a brother gave me this a while ago, and I found it fitting here. Penn Jillette from Penn & Teller. He's kind of a renowned atheist. You can go look him up, and you can look up this very thing. But um, as I understand it, someone gave him a Bible once, and we're kind of trying to witness him. And he took it for the first time because that man seemed really concerned about his soul. Kind of changed his mind. And this is his quote about grief for sin and evangelism. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, share the gospel. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. See that? Counterfeit comfort. Make it socially awkward. How much do you actually have to hate somebody not to tell them? How much do you actually have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? And about the sin that separates them from God and salvation in Christ. I mean, if I believe, this is him quoting, beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I think that is the right response when we look at judgment that is certainly coming on our culture for sin. It should be grief and a confronting of sin in the culture. In whatever way that's appropriate for you, and we're not here to have a guilt trip. We're looking at the right response God wants. Instead of a comfort over here, see what God wants. It's worth being socially awkward or even rejected for the sake of the gospel, just like Micah. Okay, Israel is the next one who responds. So we've got the first consequence of that is kind of like really big, lots of grief. And then Israel, we have a hardening of heart. And this, I think, is it's a poetic book. It's prophetic poetry. It's just I find it to be kind of funny, a little lighthearted. In Micah 2, 6, and 7, he's, he's like quoting them. We would rather hear of smooth things 
nice things in our life. Don't, don't speak to us of all these hard things. Talk to us of food and of merrymaking and of the closeness to God we have, right? That's what they're saying. <laughs> that is hardness of heart. Wanting to hear about counterfeit comforts instead of what God says, hardness of heart. So that's the first thing. And then later on, they, it seems like they would rather hear a five-step sermon about how to get drunk well than about what God wants them to hear. So preach to me of alcohol and wine. You know, they're, they're at the point of hardness of heart that they're just trying to comfort themselves with wine and alcohol, substance abuse. And you see that in the culture, hardening of heart, substance abuse is rampant from meth to whatever it is, addictions, hardening of heart. In fact, Isaiah later uh, calls him blind and deaf. He's a contemporary of Micah. This itself is a judgment. Think of Romans 1, right? A giving over to your desires. Hey, God, first consequence, judgment. Okay, what are you going to do? Rejection, hardening of heart. Go drink instead of listen. And then you know what happens? Assyria comes and they're destroyed. For those who respond with rejection in the book of Micah and in today's world, rejection, hardening of heart. But thankfully, uh, those two are not the only who res- two kind of parties, two representatives who respond. God gets the last say in the book of Micah in chapters 1 and 2. God stays true to his character, long-suffering, merciful, gracious, bringing hope to those who are faithful. If we look at the last two verses of chapter 2, 12 and 13, we see an interesting thing going on here. There's a gathering of people into Jerusalem. And if you read with me last week, and you were here, or if you read 2 Kings 18, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? What happens? Sennacherib comes, and everyone crowds into Jerusalem. And they're sitting there gathered like sheep ready for the slaughter or not. Because what happens is Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, says the angel of the Lord came down in the middle of the night, went out, like it says, broke out, and destroyed their army. I think we see a direct fulfillment of that right after Micah prophesies this. That is hopeful to me. (laughs) Despite all the wickedness, you know, Hezekiah's like, you know, you're right, God. And he, he takes the scroll of what the king said to him and takes it in the temple, bows down and pleads with God to intercede for his glory. There is so much hope in that. After everything we read, after all the judgments, after all the sin that we've committed in our lives, God still delivers. He still delivers in your life and mine. There's hope for those who are his people. For us, just as in the remnant of Micah's day, we must hope in this God. And for his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from our sin and the sin of the culture. Each person here must turn from counterfeit comforts and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Personally, we must have an individual hope in the Lord for salvation. And we also need to be sure that we're not dull from prosperity in our culture. That was one of the things in their day. They had become very dull. They didn't want to hear what the Lord said. We can learn from Micah and these people. Live daily with the Lord. So if you are now, and I know many people are, whether at work or in your life or in a marriage or with kids struggling with a very unjust situation, I think this book has a lot to offer you here, even in the two verses that we've read today about how God comes through, breaks out of a sinful and terrible situation and destroys his enemies. We know that happened at the cross, didn't it? (laughs) When all hope seemed lost, when the Son of God was murdered, Three days later, he rose. 
and himself took care of that sin problem and broke out against sin. You know, if you're struggling with that, don't entertain yourself to death. If you're struggling with injustice or past sin in your life or whatever it is, don't entertain yourself to death. Instead, come to the Lord. Memorize these two verses. Memorize Philippians 4 and 19. Find something to fight injustice. Fight it with the words of the Lord. I love Philippians 4.19. It says, For my God will provide all you need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. How much? Everything I need. What's God going to do? Wipe out 180,000 Assyrians in your life too. That's what he's about. And that's the hope we have when we turn to him. He can deliver from that. And he will ultimately deliver us from all injustice. And his justice will reign on the earth. Just a little encouraging note from years back in, in my life before I hit a little bit of a, a summary here. Jen and I lived in India for about five and a half months, a long time ago. Some of you haven't known us for that long. We've been here almost 15 years. But when we were there, we worked in an orphanage and a couple of schools on the property. And it was my first experience overseas. It was kind of wrecked me in many ways. <laughs> like, we didn't get much meat. Anyway, we learned about that orphanage, and we learned that God protected them. He was their protection against injustice. When we were there, you know, it's pretty hard in India to have land if you're a foreigner. Well, she was a New Zealander. Mummy was her name, and she owned the orphanage. Actually, it was in her name. And you know what? A lot of people didn't like that. And regularly, they would bring court cases against her in that area. Also, she had babies in that orphanage that were from Hindu backgrounds. They didn't like that. They would regularly bring court cases against her combining these things. In addition to all the multiplicity of anti-conversion laws and all the things they do to thwart the gospel there, even while we were there, she went to a court case. Every single time, for now, I think over 100 years, God has delivered her from that oppression, from that injustice, and kept that place running. Isn't that amazing? Like, he's going to do that in your life too. Injustice doesn't reign. God is there. Turn to him for deliverance from those things. So, we see that God responds to unjust Israelite leaders first with consequences, and a whole lot of them, but hope as well and deliverance. Let's pray that God would help us to see that God this week. Father, we, we're all unjust in many ways. I just ask forgiveness for any way that I've been unjust with parenting or whatever it is in my life, Lord, from seeking personal gain instead of the righteousness of those around. Lord, help us as a church to be champions of your justice, to be righteous in this wicked generation, and to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers us from all oppression, and one day will set us in his kingdom. We trust him and we love him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.